going to kind of continue a little bit in John 17, but I'm also going to take a little bit of a big picture uh, break in the middle of verse 6 as you kind of get your outline and see where we're going this morning. So I kind of titled the sermon here as uh, Jesus Prays for His Disciples. Jesus Prays for His Disciples. So I'm going to go ahead and read John 17, 6 through 12 to kind of give us a little bit of the context, but we're going to really spend our time today, this morning, this special Sunday that we're here meeting like this in John 17, verse 6. We're really going to focus on one phrase in John 17, 6, and then start looking at and explaining and, and uh, worshiping God and all of the attributes that we see the Bible tell us about who God is. And so John 17, we'll look at verse 6 through 12. And so follow along as I read it to us here. Jesus says in the midst of this prayer, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled." Father, we're grateful again for the opportunity to read a section of this high priestly prayer, the prayer of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, as we look at just a little bit of chapter 17, verse 6, and as we look at all of the greatness and the grandeur of your incredible name, that our hearts would be encouraged today, that our fears would be met today with your sovereign power and with your incredible wisdom and with your comforting love and so I pray that today would be an unusual day where we would have an intimacy with you that goes beyond anything we've ever experienced. Because day by day, moment by moment, second by second, we have the privilege of communing with an almighty God who loves us and who manifests himself, reveals himself to us. So show us yourself in a special way today through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible is full of prayers. Almost every book of the Bible contains some type of prayer, a prayer of confession, a prayer of praise, a prayer for wisdom, a prayer for God to be glorified. And I found that nothing augments my prayer life than examining the prayers that we see throughout Scripture. I mean, there's Abraham's intercessory prayer for Sodom, that God would spare that city if he found enough righteous people in it. There's Moses' prayer for Israel while they're struggling in the midst of the wilderness where Moses was pleading with God to preserve his own name and not destroy Israel. 
There's David's prayer for forgiveness and his prayer of confession after he had sinned with Bathsheba. There is Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance from the Assyrian army when all hope seemed to be lost. There's Daniel's prayer of confession on behalf of God's people as he identifies with the sins of the people and asks for God's mercy. There's Nehemiah's prayer for success that God would enable him to rebuild the wall even in the midst of adversity. In the New Testament, we see Stephen's prayer while he's being stoned that the Lord would not hold this sin against them. There's many prayers that Paul prays according to the riches of God's glory that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you would be rooted and grounded in love. There's James who tells us that if any one of us lacks wisdom, let us ask of God who gives generously without finding fault. There's Jude's prayer for us not to stumble, but that we would be blameless in God's presence with great joy and that to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forevermore. There is John who tells us that if we confess our sins in 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John also prays there at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. He finishes the book of Revelation with a prayer saying, come Lord Jesus, that the grace of our Lord Jesus would be with you all and amen. Well, that's what we see in the Bible, right? It's just full of prayer all throughout the Bible from the front to the back. And then you might ask, well, what exactly is prayer? And I would just give a simple answer to that question. What is prayer? Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is praising God. Prayer is being still before God. Prayer is asking for a change of heart. Prayer is telling God your needs. Prayer is presenting others before the Father. Prayer is thanking God for what he has done. It is asking God for empowerment. Prayer is turning your heart toward God. Prayer is a thousand things because there's a thousand ways that you can relate to God through prayer. And oh, how much we have to learn about prayer. We have so many opportunities every day to pray. And if you want to grow in your prayer life, then I think you should start off growing in your prayer life by studying the prayers in the Bible. That's what we're doing here in John 17. We're looking at this high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And this was the prayer that he prayed the night before his death. This was a sincere prayer. This was a heartfelt prayer. This was a prayer that only Jesus could pray because Jesus is our high priest. Now, as we've been outlining chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, we've already covered that first section where Jesus prays for himself, verses one through five. We're entering into this week, the second part of the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples, verses six through 19. And then eventually we'll get to verses 20 to 26 where Jesus prays for you. But today, we're going to look just at verse 6, and we're going to see how it is that Jesus prays for us, or prays for his disciples, by stating what he states, and that's going to be that he's going to manifest God's name to his people. So basically, your, your next blank there, I'm, I'm looking now at what will eventually be a three-part outline of verses 6 through 12, but today we're just going to get to part one. So it says, Jesus reveals the Father's name to his disciples. Verses 6 through 8, he reveals his Father's name 
to his disciples. Your next blank there might be A, Jesus reveals God's character. Jesus reveals God's character. Again, looking at verse six, where Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people. When Jesus prays in verse six, that I have manifested your name, he uses a word, that word manifested, which means to reveal. It means to make known. It can even mean to show. This is the same word that is used in John chapter 2, verse 11, when Jesus turned the water into wine. It says that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. It's the same word that is used in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, where it says that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. The same word manifest, to reveal, to to make known. Again, it's used in Colossians 3 verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And you might ask, well, what exactly is it that Jesus is manifesting? Look at verse 6 again. What is he manifesting? What is he revealing in this word, in this verse? And I would say that he's manifesting God's name. This means that he's revealing God's character. The concept of God's name encompasses all that he is. We're talking about everything there is to know about God, his nature, his attributes, and his character. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, uh, have not forsaken those who seek you. And it's because we we know God's name. We know his character, that we can trust in him with our whole hearts. He he will never forsake those who trust in him. His character is steadfast. Our God is immovable. He is a constant help to those in trouble. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. We don't ultimately trust in our military We don't ultimately trust in our own might. We don't trust in the almighty dollar, right? We trust in almighty God. And that's where I was in sermon preparation when the coronavirus hit. I was getting ready to just continue to move through verses six through seven. And then as the week unfolded, I don't know about you, but it has been a crazy week. I I can't think of a week more crazy other than maybe 9-11 in my life. For some of you who remember maybe when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, we're talking about cataclysmic events that change life as you know it. That's what this week has been like for me, and I'm sure it's been like that for you. We've seen this happen all over the world as the coronavirus is definitely taking its toll on our culture. It started off again on Monday for us when we were talking last Sunday about going to Israel. All of a sudden, Monday, I get a call from Pilgrim Tours saying, your trip is canceled. You guys are not going to Israel. We were taking about 50 to Israel. We were going to leave on Tuesday and be gone for about 10 days. We're hoping to reschedule that trip. So I was like, all right, I, I guess that could happen. And then on Tuesday, we got more information about your favorite presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, and, uh, and his colleague, uh, Joe Biden, started canceling their political rallies. And then I started thinking to myself, well, this is a big deal. These guys are running for president, and they're like canceling all of their rallies not to come together. What is going on? On that same day, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and Boyce College, UCLA, USC, other schools here in Southern California started canceling classes. It's just Tuesday. 
Then on Wednesday, maybe the worst of all, the NBA shut down. And it was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? No more Lakers, no more Clippers, no more NBA. Then on Thursday, the NCAA men's basketball and the women's tournament, March Madness, was canceled. And my kids started sharing a tear. What are we going to do about our tournament bracket, Dad? We don't even have to fill in our brackets this year. Soccer was canceled. Hockey was canceled. Major League Baseball has been postponed. What a sad day this is in America. Then on Friday, we had more travel bans that were extended all over the globe. The stock market, for those of you who have money in the stock market, it's been all over the place, mostly down. I said here in my notes, the stock market is dropping like an ice cream cone being held by a toddler on a hot summer day. That's what's happening. It's just sad. It's just kind of falling to the ground and just melting. The date, uh, to date, to this day, I was checking this morning online, in the world, there's been 162,594 coronavirus cases as of this morning. 162,000. As of this morning, 6,069 deaths. As of March the 3rd, which is now two weeks ago almost, the mortality rate was estimated by the World Health Organization to be at 3.4%. That means out of every 100 people that get coronavirus, the World Health Organization has said up to 3.4 could die from it. Others have said since then, they think it's less than that. We don't really know. The common flu is less than 1%, less than 1%. So as of this morning, we're just seeing incredible things that are happening all over the place. In fact, as of this morning here in America, there are 2,885 cases of the coronavirus. Every state in the United States has been diagnosed with coronavirus except for one, that would be West Virginia. As of this morning, 60 people have died here in the U.S., With the threat of further spread on the horizon, local governments have encouraged residents to stay at home and to practice social distancing. California, New York, and Washington State have banned larger gatherings. Schools across the country have been closed. Worship services have been canceled. Recreational and entertainment events are at a pretty much at a near halt. And this brings dramatic change into our lives. I mean, to say that the coronavirus virus doesn't affect you would just be a lie. It does affect you in one way or another. But you know what? Our trust this morning is in the Lord, and it's in his name, and it's in his character. And instead of continuing the sermon as I had originally planned, I decided that the best thing that we could do this morning is to look at the character of our great God. Looking at ourselves and looking at our trials and watching Fox News will not help you today. But looking at God's word and learning what Jesus means here in verse 6 when he says he's manifested God's name to his disciples, that's what we need today. We need to be looking at God's word, looking to his attributes, looking to God's promises, and that can have great impact on your spiritual health this morning. So here's what we're going to do for the rest of our sermon. I'm just going to give you 15 amazing attributes of our great God. There's more than 15, but this is just a kind of like, here's maybe the main ones as I see it, though, you know, I didn't uh, go to a great extent to figure out which ones I'm going to leave in or take off. I'm just going to like, hey, I'm going to just give you 15, all right? Here we go. Number one, God is infinite. 
God is infinite. This means that he is self-existing and without origin. That God is infinite. He's self-existing and he's without origin. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fact that God is self-existent, that he created everything, but he himself was not created is a hard concept for some of us to grasp. You know, I remember as a child trying to think, well, how could God always be? And where did he come from? And the idea of him being infinite includes this idea that he was self-existing and that he's without origin. It's one of the hardest attributes of God sometimes for a new believer to really grasp. In our limitedness, grasping the nature of his unlimited nature is, is, is just almost impossible. It's like trying to hold water as it's raging down a fast-moving river. I mean, you just, you just can't hold on to it because it's so powerful. And because God is infinite, the coronavirus ban does not affect him at all. He was before the coronavirus, and he will be existing after the coronavirus. His plans, his purposes, and his power are infinitely greater than the most virulent virus, the most beastly bacteria, and the most potent plague. Everything in this world is limited, especially hardships. They're limited. Tragedy is limited. Disease is limited. But God is unlimited. He is infinite in every way. And so let me encourage you this morning to trust in his power, to look to his might, to rest in his sovereign plan, to realize that your understanding is limited, but our infinite God is working his incredible plan in this world and in your life right now. This ought to be so comforting to us to be like, man, I need to hear that today, that God's supply of his character and his goodness and his attributes is absolutely infinite. Let's look at a second one, number two. Not only is God infinite, but God is immutable. He is immutable. This means that he never changes, that God never changes. Malachi chapter three, verse six, for I, the Lord, do not change. That's the God we serve, an unchanging God. God does not change. Who he is never changes. His attributes are the same. They are the same before the beginning of all time, and they will be the same for all eternity. His character never changes. He never gets better, and he never gets worse, and he never gets richer, and he never gets poorer. He doesn't wax, and he doesn't wane. His sovereign plan does not change. His promises never change. They are yes and amen in Christ. And because God is immutable, he doesn't change in the midst of a chaotic world. Pandemics spread, cancer metastasizes, viruses mutate, but God never changes. And this week, coronavirus has changed the world as we know it, but it hasn't changed God. He doesn't get sick and he doesn't get scared. We can trust in our immutable God during times of trouble. He is our rock, he is our fortress, he is our high tower. So I'm just encouraging you. Little times of fear, you might be like, I'm okay. And all of a sudden in the middle of the week, something's going to happen this week, guaranteed. And you're going to be like, oh my goodness. Oh my God, I can't believe that happened. I mean, who would have thought a week ago that we'd be sitting right here? 
Who knows what's going to happen this next week? There's going to be a lot of change at work, in your home, in the hospital, in the government, worldwide. Who knows what's going to happen? But our God never changes. He is immutable, and we can rest in that today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, number three, God is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. This means that he has no needs. Our God has no needs. John chapter 5, verse 26 Jesus says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also life in himself. As limited humans, we have incredible needs, which left unfulfilled result in death. God, however, has never once been in need of anything. God is perfectly complete within his own being. God possesses infinite riches of wisdom, goodness, and power in and of himself. And because God is self-sufficient and he and he alone uh, is able to satisfy our needs, God's grace never runs dry. His goodness is unstoppable. His mercy falls like rain. His peace permeates our greatest fears. He depends on no one. He depends on nothing. And he is unaided by any outside influence. And the fact that God is self-sufficient means that he looks to no one for help and he looks to no one for counsel. And during this coronavirus, we look to our president, and rightly so to some degree. We look to the CDC, we look to the World Health Organization, we look to our national and local authorities to help guide us, but God looks to no one. He doesn't look to anybody, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to make a run to Costco for toilet paper. What's all that about, by the way? I'm still trying to figure that one out. He doesn't have to run to Walmart for some hand sanitizer. He doesn't have to stockpile any commodity because God is totally sufficient and he's in need of nothing. And if nothing else, when you're just thinking about whatever you're running out of today, this week, this month, you can just be like, well, God never runs out of anything. He's an eternal energy source. He has everything that I need. And because he is self-sufficient, I can find my sufficiency in him because everything in this world is going to run out. Follow what I'm saying? Everything will run out eventually in this world, but he's self-sufficient. Come back to him for your supply and trust in him to provide for you what your needs are in these moments. So let's look at number four. Number four, God is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. This means that he has all power, that he is all powerful. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. There was a song I used to sing as a kid growing up. It was just a great comfort to my heart. I won't sing it for you this morning, but what a powerful concept that there's nothing too difficult for him. Why? Because he's all powerful. God has unlimited power. He's able to do as he pleases. There's nothing that he cannot do. God effortlessly does all that he desires to do. And when he plans something, it will come to pass. And if he purposes something, nothing can prevent his plan. And when his hand is stretched out to do something, nobody can turn it back. And because God is omnipotent, there is no power too great and no pestilence too small to escape his ever-watching care for us. The coronavirus may overpower the weak, and it may overpower the immunocompromised, and it may overpower the elderly, but it will never overpower God. 
He created this world and he will bring this world to the end when he is good and ready. And nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is too difficult for God. All power rests with him. Look to him for your strength this week. Not only is God omnipotent, but number five, God is omniscient. He's omniscient. This means that God is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Being omniscient means that God knows everything. He never sleeps and he never slumbers. He knows our strengths and he knows our weaknesses. He knows our joys and he knows our fears. And because God is all-knowing, we can trust that he knows everything that we're going to go through today and everything that we're going to go through tomorrow and everything that we're going to go through this year. He knows exactly what the coronavirus is and he knows exactly how it started. He knows how long the coronavirus will last. He knows the cure. He knows that your trip has been canceled, and he knows that your stock has dropped, and he knows that, that, uh, that you're maybe out of work in your particular line of, of work, that you don't have any work right now. He knows what you're going through. He knows it all. It's not, it's not a surprise for him. He knows everything, and somehow that gives us comfort. He's not surprised this week as we kept checking the internet. You know, I found myself trying to study, get some things done. I kind of go back and check and then boom, it's another massive headline. You know, I go and study a little bit more and I'm like, oh man, what's going on? I go check another, another headline, you know, and it just kept coming. And I was just thinking, you know, none of that surprises God. He knows it all. And somehow that gives us comfort. He already knows what the headlines are for tomorrow and the next day. And we can just trust that he knows it means that he's also all powerful to deal with it as he determines that he knows what's going to happen. And then number six, that he's omnipresent. These three oftentimes go together. The fact that he, that he's all powerful, that he's all knowing, and that he's omnipresent. Number six, again, God is omnipresent. This means that God is always everywhere. He is always everywhere. Psalm 139, verse seven through 10 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. To be omnipresent is to be in all places at all times. The fullness of his presence is all around us. And this ought to bring us deep comfort to us as Christians who struggle with loneliness, who struggle with deep sorrow, to know that in a very real way, God is near us. A.W. Tozer says that he's closer even than our thoughts. God is closer to you than the coronavirus will ever be. God is everywhere. God is so big that he doesn't have to travel. When you show up, he's already there. God can't be quarantined and he will never be banned. He crosses every border. He permeates every venue. He is dwelling inside of every born-again Christian. He reigns in the heavens and he's the king in your heart. And so this week, if you feel scared or you feel lonely or you don't know what to do because of social distancing, 
You can't distance God. He's right there in your presence. He's right there living and dwelling, as the Bible says, inside of us. Isn't that comforting to know today when you feel a little bit lonely? I just need some people. No, you just need God. That's what you need. You need to be closer to God. Number seven, God is wise. He is wise. He is full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Wisdom is more than just head knowledge and intelligence. God is infinitely wise, consistently wise, and perfectly wise. The fact is God could never be more wise. This means that he is always doing the wisest thing in our lives. No plan could ever make our lives better than the plan that he has already made. And God is working all things out in the best possible way. The wisdom of God is smarter than the smartest doctor. It's, the wisdom of God is smarter than the, the smartest infectious disease specialist. The wisdom of God is smarter than the smartest pathologist. God knows the ins and the outs of the coronavirus, and he has chosen in his perfect wisdom to allow this pandemic to spread just as it has. This is under God's sovereign control, and he chose to allow it, or you could say he ordained it to happen exactly as it is happening. He's weaving together his perfect plan in the midst of this situation that includes salvation and sanctification for many. Did you get that? I believe that he's going to use the coronavirus as he does any trial to grab people's attention and that there will be people who are actually saved that came to saving faith, not because of corona, if you know what I mean, it's because of Jesus, but it was because of the fear, because of their attention, because they're rattled, because they reached the end of themselves, that might be the moment where you're able to speak up. You're able to be salt and light in such a way at work and at home where you get the people's ear like you've never got it before. You know, it's kind of like right now our community is going crazy like it does when the earthquakes hit or the fires hit. Maybe that's a little bit more earthquakes aren't as often, but the fires that we face several times a year, everybody's like, you know, can't get back to their house and you're not sure what's going to happen. And everybody has a little bit of a softer heart checking up on each other. And I'm just saying maybe God's going to use this coronavirus to help grab people's attention so that you can be that evangelist that he's called you to be. And not only is God going to bring about salvation, I believe, as a result in his perfect wisdom from this earth worldwide trial, but he's going to bring about sanctification. He's going to bring about salvation. He's going to save people, and he's going to sanctify people. You're going to have more opportunity than you've had in a long time to be in God's word. I mean, my goodness, everything's canceled. What are you going to do? Don't just get on Netflix. All right? Don't just be like, well, we can't watch sports or we're going to watch every movie that we've ever wanted to see that we couldn't see because we didn't have enough time. I'm not saying that families aren't going to enjoy maybe having some more time to play games and watch movies together, but I am saying, why not take that opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to read more. I'm going to memorize more. I'm going to pray more. We're going to have more time to do the kinds of things that God wants us to do. And in his perfect wisdom, if that's what coronavirus needs to bring about so that you can grow closer in your walk with God, then we should be saying, bring it on, right? Not that we want people to get sick and die, but you understand what I mean. We, we embrace God's perfect wisdom 
in the trial that we're in because we know that this is an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. I mean, how many of you would say, I've prayed more this week than I did last week? Just raise your hand. You're here, you're like, you know, I prayed more this week than I did the week before. Well, shame on you if you didn't raise your hand. Right, but, you know, the idea is hopefully as tragedy was coming out, you're like, oh my goodness, we need to pray. We need to pray for our family and pray for our church and pray for our missionaries and pray for the elderly. And I'm just saying that's a good thing. And God is allowing that to happen in his perfect wisdom. Number eight, number eight, God is faithful. God is faithful. This means that he is infinitely and unchangingly true. Infinitely and unchangingly true. True. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. As with all of God's attributes, they are not separate, isolated traits, but interconnected parts of his perfect being. So his faithfulness cannot be understood apart from his immutability. And when we read that God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, we see these attributes working together. And the fact that he is unchanging means that he can never not be faithful, that God will be faithful to you both now and forever. You see how that happens? It's all of a sudden like, okay, he's unchanging, and now he's faithful. That means he's never not going to be unfaithful. He's always going to be faithful because he's unchanging. And it's like the attributes, as you start to stack them up, began to create that exponential wow of the goodness and the greatness of God because it's like to the, to the you know, one times 10 to the one billionth power of what we see happening here as we're just looking at just 15, just 15 of these incredible attributes this morning. He's faithful to you both now and forever. God is faithful in all things. He is faithful in a crisis. He is faithful in a trial. He is faithful in the storms of life. God keeps his covenant. God keeps his promises and God keeps his commitment to you. And no matter what happens with Corona, God will be faithful to you. He will be faithful to you every day of your life. He was faithful to send his son. He was faithful to save your soul. And he will be faithful to bring you through this perilous time. Number nine, God is good. God is good. This means that he is infinitely and unchangingly kind and full of goodwill. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And again, just like all of his other attributes, they all interwork together in a way that he's good and that his mercy flows from his goodness. And in his goodness to us, we see that he is purposed to be good in a special way to his people. And it is imperative for you to know that even with the good God, who is sovereign over everything and has the power to do whatever he wants, good people will still suffer. And that suffering can help point you to the goodness of God in hard times. Evil does happen, but none of those who take refuge in God will be condemned. So when we say God is good, that doesn't mean in every single detail of your life, every day goes exactly what you would determine is good. It means that it will go exactly what he determines is good, and it starts with your salvation, and then it extends to your sanctification. So when you think God is good, because you might be thinking, well, how could God be good in the midst of the coronavirus? Because he saved my soul, 
and he's growing me in my trial. And that's the goodness of the Lord on display in his character and in his attributes. And because God is good, he will be good to you. And he is not good to you because you deserve it. And he's not good to you because you've earned it. He is good to you because that's who he is. He is a good God. And the coronavirus is not a punishment of a capricious God. It's an opportunity for us to rearrange our priorities and to get rid of our idols and to be revived in our hearts to look to the goodness and the greatness of God. I mean, if you've been stagnant in your spiritual life, then God's given you an opportunity this week to be in God's word on your knees, meditating, if nothing else, on the truths of this sermon to say, you know, I just got to focus on these 15 attributes of God. Because if I let my mind wander and I veg out in front of the TV, and if all I do is keep up with the news, though I think it's important to keep up with what's going on, but if that's all I do and I'm not keeping up with the goodness and the greatness of God, then you're missing out. I mean, what if God is determined to say, I'm going to bring revival to Placerita Bible Church through the coronavirus? What if God has determined, I'm going to bring the third great awakening to this nation of America and to this world because more people are on their knees than have ever been before? I mean, how do you know what God's up to? You don't, but he's up to something good, and we have to trust that and to walk with him and believe in him and that we want to be faithful in our own regard to be growing in our understanding and our appreciation of the goodness and the greatness of God. Number 10. God is just. He is just. This means that God is right and perfect in all that he does. He's right and he's perfect in all that he does. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. What does it mean when the Bible says God is just? It means more than he's just simply fair It means that he always does what is good and right toward all men. It also means that a just God does send unrepentant sinners to hell. A.W. Tozer, in Knowledge of the Holy, reminds us that, quote, through the work of Christ in the atonement, justice is not violated, but satisfied when God spares a sinner, close quote. So we're saying that, The justice of God means that he renders justice. And part of him rendering what is good, right, and fair means that those who receive mercy will be forgiven, but those who stay stuck in their sin will be judged by a holy God. In other words, God will not let off the hook those unrepentant sinners who continue to walk in the paths of wickedness. And so we could go on to say that his mercy does not forbid him to exercise his justice, nor does his justice forbid him to exercise his mercy. He is both fully merciful and fully just, and God should never be accused of letting the coronavirus get out of hand. The coronavirus is ultimately the result of the fall, not of the justice of God. God is right and perfect in all that he does. Therefore, he is allowing this and even ordaining this trial to come about for his glory and for your good. And God's justice is not always seen as clearly in the middle of a trial, but it is at the end. And even if the end is your death or the end of this world, God will make all things right in his time. In his time, all things will be made right. He is a just God. Number 11, God is 
merciful. God is merciful. He is infinitely and unchangingly compassionate and kind. Romans 9, 15 and 16, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's mercy is inseparable from his justice. He is infinitely, unchangeably, and unfailingly merciful. He is forgiving and kind toward us. He is inexhaustibly and actively compassionate. His mercy is also undeserved by us. Without the mercy of God, we would have no hope of heaven. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, quote, It is undeserved mercy, as indeed all true mercy must be. For deserved mercy is only a misnomer for justice. There was no right on the sinner's part to the saving mercy of the Most High God. Close quote. He's saying we don't deserve mercy, the mercy of God, but he gives it anyway. In a crisis like what we are experiencing, we need to remember that we deserve far worse. We deserve the judgment of God, and yet he is merciful. And he extends that mercy to us through Jesus Christ, his son. You think the coronavirus is bad? Hell is even worse Right? That's what we really deserve as sinners. And yet the coronavirus is just getting our attention, reminding us that God is actually a merciful God. He's given me another day. He's given me forgiveness through Christ. He's given me the opportunity to rejoice in the midst of my trial. Jesus died in your place so that you don't have to. That's mercy. And we should be seeing it highlighted more than ever in the midst of a trial. Well, not only is God mercy, that was number 11, now verse 12, or number 12, God is gracious. God is gracious. This means that God is infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If mercy is not getting what we do deserve, which is hell, then grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is eternal life. And because grace is a part of who God is and not just an action that he bestows upon us, we can trust that his grace is eternal. His grace will last a lifetime and it will last for all eternity. And while all of humanity benefits from common grace, only those who have repented and put their trust in Christ alone will receive saving grace. His grace is something that we did not earn and something that we cannot lose. And in the midst of the pandemic of the coronavirus, we can and are experiencing the grace of God. The grace of God never stops flowing through Christ. The grace of God is not manufactured by man, and it doesn't have to be approved by the CDC. And it is not uh, something that comes and goes based on your obedience. God gives and he gives and he gives and he gives grace. We don't deserve it. That's the whole point. God gives us grace to save us from our sin and he gives us grace to make it through this life. And when we're feeling overwhelmed, as I'm sure that many of us do, look to the grace of God. His grace will comfort you and fill you with the peace that transcends all understanding. Our God is a God of grace. Number 13, God is loving. 
This means that God is infinitely and unchangingly, that he infinitely and unchangingly loves us. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, as with all his attributes, we can only begin to comprehend God's love in light of all the attributes that we're looking at this morning. The love of God is eternal. It's sovereign. It's unchanging. It is infinite. Tozier writes again, quote, God's love is active, drawing us to himself. His love is personal. He doesn't love humanity in some vague sense. He loves humans. He loves you and he loves me. And his love for us knows no beginning and it knows no end. Close quote. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, we need to remember God's love. First, remember he loves you and has proven his love for you by sending his son to die on the cross for your place. That's the first thing you go in counseling with anybody who's struggling with depression. They're down and out. They feel like nobody loves them. I just hold oh, time out. Stop right there. God loves you. And he proved his love for you by sending his son to die on the cross in your place. And if somebody's just like, yeah, I know that, but I'm really struggling with this, this, and this. I'm going to time out. That's it. Like there, there is no other love that you need other than the love of God through Jesus Christ. There's more love that we want, but there is no other love that you need other than the love that God gives us through Christ. Don't move quickly past that and be depressed about the other loves that you're not getting. Instead, run to this love, stay in this love, meditate on this love, remember that he loves you, and he has proven his love to you by sending his son to die on the cross for your sins. And that's the love that ought to transform you. And that's the love that is that special gift that God gives to you and that you can give to others. And during the midst of us hunkering down at home and writing this thing out, I want to encourage you to love each other. When you put a lot of family members together in a tight space and they're not going to school and going out to their normal activities and they're all home alone, that could be a wonderful thing and it could be a scary thing where you start to get at each other's throats a little bit and you start to pile up on top of each other with your own sinful hearts coronavirus is going to give you some opportunity for you to learn how to love your family. I mean, how's that going to go for you when your kids maybe aren't at school, so you have them in your possession for more time than maybe you're used to? Hopefully it'll just teach you how to love. How's it going to do when, whenever your family's not able to go to this particular thing that you had planned or that particular thing that you had planned, so you're staying home together? Are you going to be able to exercise loving interaction together with your words, being patient with one another, being, being talking with one another in a way that really shows that you love one another. I'm just going to encourage you. Coronavirus could give you incredible opportunity to grow in love, or it could give you incredible opportunity to complain and to whine and to be short with one another and to wish, it, oh, it's going to be cool for about a week. You know, you're like, oh, we don't have to go to school. This is awesome. And then it's going to be like, you know, you're going to start to, it's, to, it's going to be challenging potentially, right? And this is an opportunity for us to look at God's love and then to try to emulate that love that we can have for one another. Number 14, God is holy. God is holy. This means he is infinitely and unchangingly perfect. Revelation chapter four, verse eight and the four living creatures, each of them had six wings full of eyes all around and within day after night, day and night, they never ceased to say, holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The word holy means to be set apart. It means to be sacred or revered, to be divine. And yet none of those words is adequate to describe the awesome holiness of God. It's John MacArthur who writes, quote, of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that it most uniquely describes him and in reality is a summation of all of his other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, the fact that he is unlike any other being. It indicates his complete and infinite perfection. The holiness of God is the attribute of God that binds all the others together, close quote. So we're seeing here that this holiness of God, it's unique. Only God is holy in perfect holiness. And even though we deserve God's wrath because he's holy, we're sinful, we can experience God's forgiveness through Christ's death and his resurrection. And thank God that through Christ, the penalty of our sin was paid. And because God is holy and his son is holy, then Jesus Christ is righteous and his righteousness is now imputed to our account. So part of the holiness of God is God's holy and I'm not because I'm a sinner but he's given me Christ who's perfectly righteous and Christ is now, his holiness is imputed to me. God's holiness ought to be our constant meditation. And while we can never be truly holy as God is holy, the Bible does say, Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says you're to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. First Peter 1, 15 says you're to be holy in all of your conduct. And so let me encourage you that with the coronavirus going on and all the things that are happening and, and, and it's gonna give you a lot more, again, free time as we've mentioned, it's gonna give you more idle time. My question to you is, are you gonna take advantage of that idle time in your life to do holy things? Or with that idle time is the temptation to be lazy, it's a temptation for lust, it's a temptation to complain, it's a temptation to struggle with whatever you struggle with. You know, sometimes as Americans, we just get so busy, we don't struggle with certain things because we just, I don't have time for that. Now you have time for it and you gotta make a choice every moment of every day this week this weekend, the week in front of you, am I going to be choose? Am I going to choose to be holy, to live a life of holiness, to use these days and ask God to grow me in holy conduct with my thoughts and with my trust, that I would be conformed every day more and more into the image of God's Son. Number fifteen, God is glorious. This means that He is infinitely, beautifully great. He is infinitely and beautiful and great. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his handiwork. The glory of God is evident in creation, but the glory of God is also evident in his character. When you think about the beauty of God, every time you see something in creation, what a beautiful sunset. That's a great mountain. I'm happy for the sunrise. That's, that's part of God's, God's display of his glory. Right? But I want you to just take that and match it together with an attribute. Because if you're just looking at creation, that's beautiful and it ought to inspire us, but it won't necessarily transform you. Not like the special revelation of God's word. So always connect a 
general revelation of, man, God's so big, he's so mighty, that's so awesome, and start immediately thinking like, hey, what can I focus on in the Bible that would also tell me something incredible about God's character? I, I want to call you to a life of, 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 of understanding that God is glorious not only in creation, but in his character. Now listen to Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. John Piper defines God's glory like this, quote, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The infinite beauty, and I am focusing on the manifestation of his character and his worth and of his attributes, all of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen, and there are many of them. That's why I use the word manifold, close quote. So we just say, hey, God is glorious in so many ways. There's, there's, he reveals it in all of these attributes ought to allow us to see the glory of God as we've never really seen it before. And I would add that our whole existence and purpose is to glorify him as we are created in his image to do good work that he has prepared for us to do. And inevitably, man will try to find glory in other things and try to make himself an object of glory. And when those things fail to bring us satisfaction, we must decide to humble ourselves and turn our gaze back to the one who is worthy of glory. Only God is truly glorious and you can only be finding your true glory in him. You know what? The coronavirus is ugly. The coronavirus can stir up ugly things that exist in our hearts. So I want to confess you today. I want to encourage you today to confess those things and to look to the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God as your delight. God is glorious and he will be glorified in this situation. My question is, will you see God's glory more clearly during this time. And if you want to see God's glory, then look for it in creation, but also look for it in the Bible. Ask God to reveal his glory to you like never before. And I believe that this is part of what Jesus is thinking, back to John 17, 6, when he says that he's manifesting the Father's name. He's manifesting his character. He's manifesting his nature. He's manifesting his attributes. Jesus surely taught the attributes of God better than anyone else. And not only in his teaching, but also in his example. In fact, I would say that the supreme and most clear manifestation of the name of God was in the carnation of Jesus Christ. Is that there in your blank as a special note? That the supreme and most clear manifestation of the name of God was the, carnation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the best way that, that Jesus could reveal the name of God to the people was to reveal himself to the people. 
So perfectly and completely did Jesus reveal God's nature and character that he could make bold statements like John 12, 45. Whoever sees me has seen him who sent me. When Jesus says sees me, he's not talking about with their physical eyes, but with their spiritual eyes. And that's why Jesus can say what he said in John 14, 9. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The authors of the New Testament are just as adamant pointing us to these same truths. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Philippians 2.6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here's what we're saying. All of these verses point us to the greatest revelation that God has ever given. God's greatest revelation was not creation, and God's greatest revelation was not the Exodus. God's greatest revelation was not the Ten Commandments. God's greatest revelation was not Solomon's temple when it was filled with the Shekinah glory of God. God's greatest revelation was giving us his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus told the words of God, and he lived out the decree of God. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Jesus was the fullness of God dwelling bodily, and he's the radiance of the glory of God. If you want to see the attributes of God, look to Christ. Look at everything that he said. Look at everything that he does that he did. And you'll start to put flesh on these attributes as you see a little bit of how Jesus did accomplish everything that God called him to do. Now next week, I hope to get us back into our typical verse-by-verse study through the rest of John 17, 6 through 12. But here's just a couple of take-home thoughts I want to challenge you with today. You see them there at the bottom of your page of notes. Number one, what have you learned today about the attributes of God? We've all heard lots of messages on the attributes of God. Hopefully you've read A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God, A.W. Tozer, uh, the, the Knowledge of the Holy. There's so many classic books out there that are just so great to read through. But maybe today you've been reminded of at least one out of these 15 where you're just like, you know what, I'm going to hang my hat on that one. I'm going to study that a little bit this week. I'm going to meditate on that this week. I'm going to let that particular attribute or those two or three attributes really transform my thinking about the goodness and the greatness of God. Number two, which attributes of God, which attribute of God encourages you the most during this present trial? So as you, as you have faced a little bit of struggle, a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, which one of these 15 would you say, you know what, I'm going to meditate on that. So when I get fearful this week, when I'm not sure what to do to this week, I'm going to pick that attribute, that verse, the other verses that go with it. And then number three, and this is a, another unique um, thing that we can be encouraged to do, how can you pray through the attributes of God on a regular basis? We started off the sermon saying, We need to augment our prayers. The best way we can augment our prayers is to study the prayers of the Bible. We're studying Jesus's high priestly prayer of John 17 right now. And I'm saying to you, as we've now looked at the attributes, another thing you can do to encourage your prayer life, is just like, you know what? I'm going to pray through the attributes of God. I'm going to get the attributes of God in front center in my thinking. And as I'm praying to God, I'm going to regularly reach out and grab an attribute, talk about it, confess it, ask for deeper insight, 
um, just just apply that in my prayer life as I am uh, wanting to grow and how I can pray more biblical prayers. All right, let's pray together uh, as we've, we're going to get ready to sing one final song, and uh, let's pray and prepare our hearts to do just that. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be comforted today by just solid teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ about manifesting your name to the people, and as we've tried to just take a look at what that looks like and what that means and how we can be encouraged by that, I pray that you would bless our hearts, Lord, that you would give us this week to revere you more than we have ever before. God, that you would give us this week as an opportunity to study the attributes of God, to think about again, what does it mean for Jesus to reveal, to make known the character, the nature, the name of God to us? How do we see that in his teaching? And how do we see that in the way he lived, God? So bless this week as we want to continue to grow together in our faith and our trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.